Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and I'm your host, Cole Sharman. Today we are joined by Alan Olford. Alan is Chief Information Security Officer at Mitel, previously CISO at Forcepoint and CISO at Polygon. With 30 years experience in IT and engineering, Alford has a long history with product security as well, having served as Pearson's Product Information Security Officer and a Senior Director of Product Security at Polycom. Hope you enjoy. Beecher Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Hi, Ellen. Welcome to the podcast today. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. No problem. So let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Texas. I am a sixth generation Texan. And who are were your parents? So my mom was a school teacher. Uh, she's still with us. My dad, we lost a few years ago, but he was actually a, um, a security guy for the mainframes. I am, believe it or not, second generation InfoSec. Incredible. That's, that's quite rare. Um, where, where did you grow up? Uh, mostly in Houston, although part of my early childhood, we actually lived in Miami, Florida. My dad, uh, coming out of college, started working for the airlines, and he seemed to have a knack for finding airlines that went out of business. So he was at Braniff, <laughs> and then uh, when Braniff folded, we left Texas for Miami, went to work for National Airlines. <laughs> National folded, and we came back to Texas, so my dad picked up banks, and uh, he proceeded to work for a few banks that folded. And then he finally got into geophysical and did that for the last probably 15, 20 years of his career. So he finally found his niche. Well, I, I have to ask about that. So what did that teach you in terms of them sort of relocations and then companies, you know, collapsing like that? Yeah. So for me, I, I, I kind of learned that things aren't as stable for the grownups as, as they would like them to be. Right. That, uh, <laughs> that you know, having a job is, is a promise, not a commitment. Um, and promises can be broken. Right. So the other lesson I learned from it was, you know, again, he was a mainframer. And he basically got put out to pasture when he was in his late 50s. Um, he didn't get to retire at the age he wanted to. He basically got pushed out. They decided the old mainframers weren't going to learn the new ways, and let's just get rid of them and hire young kids that know the new technologies. And suddenly he found himself jobless uh, before he planned to be. So he had to scramble and become a landlord and come up with all kinds of tricks to earn income. He totally pulled it off. He was a genius with money. But uh, but that taught me something as well, which is, you know, never, never stay still, never rest your laurels, never stick with one technology, always be looking to the future, always be looking for change, because if you don't adapt to it, you're, you're going to be one of the ones who gets put out to pasture. So other than the education from your parents, what was your actual education like? Um, I kind of went all over the place. I actually got to attend Harvard University when I was still in high school through a special program they have for uh, high school juniors and seniors. So. My, my college education started off about as good as you can do in the States. Um, but I didn't, I didn't stick it out there. That was just for the one program. And then, and then I ended up getting a scholarship to TCU, uh, went there for several years, transferred to UT university of Texas, went there for several years. Uh, ultimately was, was working my way through school, paying my way as I went working technology jobs, 
finally reached a point where the career had really taken off and school was becoming a nuisance. Uh, so I basically quit with, with maybe a semester or two to go and uh, finally returned to that as a grown-up and did online at DePaul University and completed my undergrad there. And I'm now in a master's program online, um, working that as well. At what point did you change your mind to go back and why was that to go and complete that undergrad? So I was a director in InfoSec um, doing product security at Polycom, and I got that far without any college degree at all, right? But I recognized that if I was going to climb the ladder, having some sort of degree would behoove me. So I went and finished that undergraduate degree, admittedly in liberal arts. Um, that's what I had been focused on the whole time, so it was the easiest way to close out and get a degree quickly. Um, so that's what kind of prompted me to get the master's degree. I'm over at Our Lady of the Lake in San Antonio um, doing a master's in information systems and security, basically getting that first ever technical degree. Uh, partially as just a resume checkbox. You know, oftentimes you apply for a job and they insist on a technical degree. Okay, fine, have one of those was kind of the thinking. Um, but also to, to backfill and learn because I'm self-taught. I thought there might be some formal education that I was lacking. And, and it's proven to be the case. I've learned some things from this program. And you mentioned InfoSec. So when was the first time you heard about InfoSec in your career? Well, so in my life, I was in middle school. Again, my dad was the security guy in the mainframe world. And he was, um, he was at a geophysical firm, you know, protecting some extraordinarily expensive data, right? Geophysical companies spend millions of dollars exploring and investigating to figure out what the likelihood is that there might be oil on, on that particular patch of land. And that data is incredibly valuable. They spend millions to get it. They sell it for tens of millions to the oil companies. And of course, anybody who can come along and steal it gets that million dollars for free. So he was very concerned about security in his role and uh, did a lot of work there to protect that. And so I learned about security at an early, early age. And, and frankly, before there were laws in the U.S. against such things, uh, I was quite the little hacker when I was in middle school. I uh, actually broke into my dad's mainframe at work one time just to prove to him I could. <laughs> That must have been an interesting time when you got home and he found out. Yeah, I, I printed up the proof and brought it to him. Uh, he was proud of me and he was also disappointed with his coworker whose uh, password I was able to easily guess. So. <laughs> wow, that's uh, yeah, that's incredible. That's uh, that's a great education as well. So, how did you how did you make the transition from? dropping out of your education and making the move into uh, information security? Yeah. So uh, like I said, I paid my way through school. Um, I, it was either scholarships or, or whatever money I earned is how I covered my entire undergraduate you know, career. So I had to make good money if I was going to be, you know, uh, any kind of successful in the school space. I mean, working full time and going to school full time simultaneously is an awful lot. So I was constantly trying to balance which one do I do part time? And, you know, if I can do more money, if I can make more money, I can work less and do more school. And so very quickly I got out of, you know, flipping burgers and got into leveraging those IT skills from middle school that I'd sort of let rust in high school. Uh, in high school, I discovered girls. So computers weren't as big a priority. But I got back into the computers in college, still had the skills, still had the aptitude and very quickly discovered I could make more money doing that than I could doing any of the standard college kid jobs. And so it just kind of blossomed from there. I just kept working and kept doing and, and eventually had a real career before I even ever got the degree. Yeah, which is, which is amazing um, to be able to take that jump, especially for only, only like a semester, um, you know, to go or, or so. Um, you know, it's incredibly uh, risky and, and brave in that sense. 
Well, when you're paying your way through and your choices are in front of you of, you know, going to school forever because you're working a burger flipping job or, you know, getting clever, doubling down and, and trying to make something out of an IT career, um, you've got a lot of incentive. Mm. So, so what, is it, what does information security mean to you? So it's a bigger, broader world now than it used to be. I used to think of it strictly as hacking, um, you know, both the positive and negative sense. I'm, I'm one of those people who uh, I get upset when I hear bad guys refer to as hackers and, and as if that's a pejorative term. You know, hacking is is what the good guys and bad guys are both doing. It's learning and exploring and, and, and evolving and guessing what the rules are behind a given system and figuring out how to leverage those rules to your benefit. Um, I, I think all those things still apply, but now for me, it's sort of grown into a much more business perspective and a much larger view. And I think of information security in terms of how it impacts industry and, and growth and, and even our political mechanisms. You know, the, the idea that these uh, electronic voting machines can be somehow compromised. You know, there's some really scary, real world, large scale implications to information security now that didn't really used to be there when I was younger. And what else do you, have you seen change, you know, since you started in the industry? Oh, lots. Um, you know, I was I, I was there for the beginning of what was called back in the day the PC revolution, right? I mean, it, we went from if there was a computer in your office, it was a mainframe and you had a dumb terminal on your desk to everybody's got their own computing power on their desk. And then peer-to-peer -peer networking and Windows for Workgroups and Apple Talk and Lantastic and Novell and all these things came, you know, Unix sort of rose and fell. Uh, Linux came to the forefront and sort of kicked Unix out of its space. Um, there's been so much change, just so much change since I started. And coming from a, an IT or a technology background, how did that help you actually transition into uh, you know, a more focused cybersecurity position? Yeah, so what I would consider to be my, my true cybersecurity focus portion of my career um, came because of my generic IT skills and IT background. I was the guy, you know, back in the day before we had dedicated security folks, that didn't mean we didn't have security concerns, right? Antivirus has been around for a long, long, long time. And I was the guy that was like, hey, I'm kind of interested in, you know, what the bad guys are up to and tools we have to help block them. So I'll, I'll be the one to administer the antivirus. And, and so it went. I was the guy that administered our first anti-spam solution and, you know, blocking malware and, and, and through the email vector and all those kinds of things. So I, I kind of I kind of naturally gravitated from a generic IT career into a security specific career just because those were the bits that fascinated me. And then I understand that you worked in product security. You mentioned it already. How has that supported you in you know your current role, for example, as oh, being a CISO? Tremendously so is how. Um, I, if if I, if it was possible, I would recommend that every single CISO go get a product security background uh, before they become a CISO. I, I honestly think it's the most valuable piece of anything I've ever done in my past that that got me here today. When you're in product security, you're you're part of revenue generation, right? The, the this intersection of security and the generation of revenue, the, the the intersection of security and the core mission of your organization, it's so much easier to attain that 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 perspective and to connect those dots when you're on the product side, because when you're on the product side, you are in fact part of the revenue generating team. I had to learn how to work with the greater business product delivery process. You know, what's a concept gate? What's a commit gate? You know, who are the teams and players involved? How do I work with product management, product marketing, sales, QA, uh, support and services, all of the different facets of the company that made the company the company that, that did the actual business that brought the money home for all of us. I was an integral part of all that. And 
that valuable business knowledge, that that complete deep awareness of how the business actually operates, what its goals are, what its mission is, how it fulfills that mission, what its pain points are. If you can gather all of that knowledge, you're going to be so much better a CISO than if you don't have that knowledge. And also, I suppose, how has this also affected your decision making in choosing which products you know you currently go and use? Oh, absolutely, it has. Um, so, I mean, it's you know, I, I know the inner workings, right? I know which questions mm. to ask. My vendor questionnaires that I send out to potential vendors, I am grilling them. You know, walk me through your formal, disciplined, you know, secure development lifecycle. Walk me through uh, what your testing looks like. What are your metrics? How do you measure yourself? What do you share with your teams? What can you share with your customers in terms of your burndown rates? And are you are you creating more vulnerabilities than you're solving? Are you solving more than you're creating? I mean, I can ask a million and one questions that are all insider knowledge on how this should work and challenge the vendors with those questions. And I'm sure you get a lot of questions, right? Because there's so many vendors out there. So what makes a good product to you? Um, it's a lot of factors. I, I really think, you know, the biggest problem we have as an industry, I think, is the fact that we've really gotten obsessed with our technology stack, right? I've brought this up in, in various interviews and articles I've written and, and, and things of that sort over the years. But it's really become, to me, the, the single biggest problem we have. We are so obsessed with the technology that we're putting technology first, and so products get created um, not so much because they're solving real-world business problems that I have, but because they're flashy, because they're an alternative to the way it was done last year, because they they take what was la- you know what was being done last year and add some little incremental improvement, you know, slightly fewer false positives or whatever the claim might be, and it becomes technology that's an answer to technology and an answer to you know investment concerns in the industry as opposed to technology that's addressing real world problems. So for a vendor to come to me and say, who are you? What do you do? What are your pain points? You know, what are your processes? How might I help you? If the vendor comes in with a whole lot of questions that are about me and my business, I'm going to be much more inclined to work with them than, than a vendor who comes in and starts telling me how they can solve the problems that they don't even know whether I have those problems. And with product innovation, cloud has become a massive part of this disruption. So how do you manage uh, a large transformation such as cloud from a security perspective? Uh, by being there first. <laughs> That's the real key. Uh, every every good you know cloud infrastructure provider, look at all your major players. They all have a wealth of security tools available. They have all manner of ways to integrate with your existing security stack as well. And all of this stuff is available. It, it's also very, very easy to set things up in such a way that there's no security at all. It's freedom. It's 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 the same freedom you have when you first build a server and stick it on your network. Um, you don't have to patch it. You can go live, right? You don't have to install antivirus. You can go live. The cloud offers similar, you know, parallel uh, metaphor there. There's all kinds of ways to do things in an insecure manner. So getting the security team in there early, learning what the native tools are, learning what the integration points are with the production tools, but more importantly, training those that are doing the deployments in cloud. Guys, we don't put our credentials in the clear in a, in a public bucket. Make sure you know what the permissions are in this, you know, this storage that you've got out there on the cloud. Make sure that your certificates and keys are stored separately. You know, basic, basic stuff um, and, and good hygiene and educating the cloud teams. Cloud is a wonderful opportunity to do so much, but that means it's also an opportunity to do so much wrong. And it's, it's all about educating and partnering with that team early on to make sure the right thing happens early. 
Then let's focus on your role now as, as a CISO. So why did, the, why did the role of the CISO appeal to you? I think I kind of covered it before. To me, it's the natural progression after being the director of product security. It, it just made sense. Um, mm. I had incorporated the business into my thinking. I had brought security to the business. And I recognized, hey, I've got all these IT skills from before because, I, you know, for, for 20 years I was in IT before I jumped ship and did 10 years in engineering and as a product security guy. And CISO gave me a chance to fuse all of that together. My old IT skills coming together with my business awareness, coming together with my sense of security. It, it was just the natural next step. Now, what's always fascinated me in being a CISO is entering a complex or high-risk environment like some of the ones that you've entered. So how do you get up to speed quickly in, say, your first 90 days in any type of company? Sure. So the first 90 days are, to me, some of the most critical. Um, and I've got a I've got a method that I've carried with me from company to company that 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 has always been successful. Um, the first thing I do is I meet with absolutely everyone in the company who's ever heard the word security and might know who the practitioners are, because you'll find, despite the official org chart, that you're going to have key advocates and practitioners of security in all manner of nooks and crannies all throughout the organization. You need to identify and find those people and meet with them and grill them. What's working? What's not working? What are your pain points? You know, Why are you in this weird role over here doing security in a vacuum? Aren't you part of this greater security effort over there? And ask all those organizational questions of the practitioners. While you're doing that, you're simultaneously meeting all your stakeholders and your business process owners, and you're learning the business. You know, Go talk to the heads of marketing. Go talk to the heads of sales. Go talk to the heads of all these different departments. Talk to legal. Talk to HR. And learn from them what their needs are. What you know, One of the first questions I ask people is, what, what do you think information security is? Why do you think a CISO is here? Why do you think I'm here? What am I here to do for you? And learn from them what their expectations are. These might be expectations you, you have to temper. You might have to work with them to alter expectations. But more often than not, it's a really good guide rod as to where you should be focusing your efforts and energies and, and also um, – you know, where the education needs to occur for your team to help align them better with the business. And do you just collate that information, I suppose, to understand the business's needs? Do you just do that through oral or do you do it through some other method? It's mostly face-to-face -face meetings, face-to-face um, -face meetings, phone meetings if, if necessary, video meetings wherever possible. I'll take all that information and collate it. I'll, I'll fire up a, you know, like Microsoft OneNote, and I'll just start plowing all this information into OneNote, sorting it by stakeholder I speak to, et cetera. And I'll review those notes every day at the end of the day and start spotting the trends. And it's like, you know, I've talked to 10 people. I've talked to 20 people. I've talked to 80 people. You start to spot the trends. And then I'll put together a PowerPoint presentation that's effectively uh, two things. The first is it's a mirror. You're going back to the business and you're saying, I've met with all your stakeholders. I've met with all your practitioners. And here, business, is what I see you as from a security perspective. Here's where I believe you are. Here's where I believe you want to be. And here's where I believe you need to be. And, and share that and echo that back and bounce that presentation off the same people to make sure you got it right. Um, and then the second thing that that presentation should be is, okay, now that we've got all that together as the CISO, here's what I believe my next next 90 days steps are. Here's where I think we need to take this. And again, bounce that off those stakeholders. You're starting to do two things. You're showing them that you listen, that you're not a one-way communicator, and you're also showing them that you're the expert in your realm, and you're also setting expectations and, and showing them how they can measure you. So how do you communicate these issues or trends, as you called them, 
um, to the C-suite or board level. Oh, that's that's very simple. After you've done that first presentation and, and that first 90 days commitment, you're now, like I said, you're showing them how to measure yourself. So that's step one. Here's who I am. Here's the value I add. Here's what you should expect of me. Communicate those things clearly up front and early and often. And then here's how you can measure me and here's what I'm committing to do. And you start to set yourself a very aggressive schedule. You express goals in terms of business. Again, more than half your meetings were with the business stakeholders, not the security practitioners. That product security background where you learn about delivery of products and what it takes to run a business, those are the terms and the words. That is the language you should be using as you express anything upstairs. Here's the security impact to business. Here's the security impact to revenue. Here's a business risk that information security can help close the gap. And you always lead with the business and you follow through with the information security and technology should be the absolute last thing you talk about. Do you just find that you keep repeating this to maintain success? To, to a certain degree. There's definitely an amount of, of reiteration with some of the messaging, but, but as you evolve and grow your effort, um, you're also starting to present different materials and different you know, measurements, right? Because it's, you know, how do you measure security? is is a key component to all this as well it, it all ties together you know early on you may be operating off of scorecards and maturity assessments but towards the end you should be able to demonstrate specific key business risk and and measure all manner of activity around it are we actually measuring this risk are we lessening this risk what did it cost us to to lessen the risk did did our investment pay off have we have we forestalled an even greater cost um, you have to get into a pretty granular level of detail where it's not just uh, a scorecard any longer, but but very much a risk-specific, business-specific language with costs of both uh, solving things and not solving things on the table so that the business can participate in making those decisions. So when you're producing these measurements of security to the business, how does this support your budget need? <sighs> Great question. Um, again, you're having to talk in terms of dollars if you're doing it right. But, but a lot of those dollar values, you end up struggling in some cases to really be concrete about that. You can say, for example, you know, we have a, a brand damage risk, or, or let's say that your website is also where you do your sales. So that website gets hacked or compromised. The bad guys get in. Um, you're losing revenue. Obviously, there's a, there's a straight up revenue recognition that's not happening. Um, you know, the, the, the stream has stopped. It's not flowing anymore. But also there's brand damage. Oh, I don't want to do business with those guys anymore. Their website is always down. And, and there's these softer costs that get associated with it as well. And then you have to take those costs, put them on the table and, and really speak to, OK, um, what are my technology solutions or, or people solutions? You know, what is this going to cost me in person hours? What is this going to cost me in tech stack? Here's what I think the investment is to lessen that risk. Right now, that risk is an eight. Um, here's a couple of solutions that are both, you know, budgetary in mind, you know, maybe even ideally three solutions. You come back upstairs and you say, we can spend a hundred thousand dollars to take the eight down to a six. We can spend $500,000 to take the eight down to a three. And, and, and you have those kinds of conversations. There are new generation tools that have come out that are actually assisting with that very physic that, that CISOs have to address. And there's a variety of solutions and a variety of sources. I know that some of the companies use um, cyber insurance actuary tables to get their dollar values. Others have proprietary algorithms. Others um, support kind of through a services and tools approach, uh, different techniques in that space. But it's something that I think is a really hot space to look at and pay attention to. I think over the next few years, this intersection of risk and budgeting is going to be one of the most profound and important technologies in a CISO's toolkit. 
I totally agree. I think many of the conversations that I've had with board members or at C-suite level is really around cybersecurity being seen as a cost center. So do you think we can move away from it being seen like that? Absolutely. Um, and it goes back to that product security background. It's so much easier in a product security space or in a B2B space to say, hey, look at me adding value. Look at me facilitating revenue. But but that's not to say you can't do it in all circumstances. You have to be able to demonstrate where security equals good value, equals facilitating the flow of revenue. Again, if you sell through the website and the website gets hacked, you know, equals no revenue, right? So to say to the business, here's me making sure this system stays up and running, make sure it's predictable and reliable, making sure the data that flows through it is accurate. You're not going to lose money chasing after bad data or dealing with it. You're, you're going to gain revenue. It's, it's a pretty straightforward proposition if you, if you really understand the business and understand where you intersect with the business to point to those moments where you're facilitating the business. Yes. And I suppose that starts moving where you actually contribute to revenue in such a way. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's key. And, and again, B2B is so much easier, right? Uh, it's, and, and B2C cloud, but you know, like, look at what we do at Mitel. I've got, I've got B2C or B2B really is what they are, but it's straight to the consumer cloud services that we offer. Obviously security is a key proposition there. I've got customers who won't even buy if I don't have certain certifications. Well, my team as the security team, we're the ones acquiring and achieving those security certifications. So there's a simple example. Um, but also, you know, I have to pass that, that vendor questionnaire um, just like the vendors I, you know, you asked me earlier, how do I know what a good product is? Well, other people are asking me those same questions that I'm asking my vendors and I have to be able to answer them well. I have to answer them quickly. I have to answer them to their satisfaction. I have to demonstrate that I'm on top of my game in the security space. There are plenty of customers who will just walk away from the deal if they're not satisfied with the answers to those questionnaires. So there's a direct revenue tie in there as well. Yes. And, and we focus a lot on technology and vendors. And, and you mentioned that technology first focus. Something that we haven't really talking, talked about, which is very much still comes into budgets, is the people focus. So what are you exploring and what are you trying to achieve from your people rather than just relying on technology from a security point of view? Oh, I'm I'm a very strong back to the basics advocate when it comes to the entire information security game. I, I personally believe we waste a lot of time and effort on technology that we don't even need. Um, I think educating and training your team is is tantamount uh, to to you know to being successful. I think I think you have to do two types of training with with a good security team. Um, obviously, everyone's going to come in the door with certain specialties, you know, specializations, right? Someone's going to be, hey, I'm the firewall guy. I, I you know I work with firewalls, and somebody else works with, you know, DLP and CASB and these kinds of tools, and and somebody else is a, a policy person, etc. So you, you look at the makeup of your whole team and you say, here's my GRC guys over here and here's my firewall guys and here's my antivirus guys. And you, know, you look at your whole team and you cross train them. You force them out of their comfort zone, put them together on projects in such a way that they are learning from one another and, and really starting to understand and adapt to the roles, the responsibilities, the struggles and, and the triumphs of their counterparts in these other spaces and security for which they're not specialists. You start with that, but at the same time, you want to do with your entire team that exact same model versus the business that you do with each of your sub-departments versus each other, right? You want your whole team to get that business perspective, to get a deeper understanding. 
make people project leads um, specifically so that they'll learn that niche of the business. Make people participate in boards and, and, and programs. You go represent the security team with these folks over here in that department, and you'll be the one to attend and represent. Even if you're not a manager, I don't care. I want you to learn what they do. And you're going to teach them what we do, and you're both going to gain value from that. And if you can do that kind of cross-training in the business within your own team, pretty soon you'll find you've got a very strong foundation. Any security crisis that comes up, any security need that comes up, you've got a strong team you can rely on to just grab folks at random and say, hey, I know you're officially a GRC guy, but you've done a bunch of this other stuff. Come help us architect this solution together. And, and you should have a team built to that level. And, and when you've got your players that strong, it's, it's much less of a dependency on the tech stack at that point. Mm. And, that, and that type of training, do you use that to attract you know, the, the best people in that region to come and work for Mittel? Oh, I, I believe the training is key. Absolutely. I, th- I, think it's a, I think it's an incentive. I think it's a necessary component. Uh, anyone I talk to, I'm, I'm all about, you know, come on board, come join my team. You are going to learn here, right? Mm. Yeah, perfect. And I suppose for many security professionals, they chase roles normally in the top two um, paid industries, so financial services, consultancies. So why did you choose Mattel for you? Yeah, so I chose Mattel for several reasons. Um, and, and, you know, I, I get the appeal of the financial sector. I get it. Um, financial sector, obviously, lots of security controls in place, lots of need for security. Um, generally speaking, you're going to have a good budget and a good sized team. Um, you're also heavily regulated, which can be kind of annoying at times. Um, and then there's other industries that are going to be varying degrees up or down from those, you know, those those points that I made. Mitel, for example, we're actually pretty pretty regulated at Mitel as well. Not as much as the financial industry. We, we've got a little bit less of that, but there is quite a lot of re- regulation because we're a, we're a telco. Uh, we provide uh, cloud phone services, and as a result, the Federal Communications Commission in the U.S., for example, uh, has regulations. You know, I've got I've got dealings with other foreign governments that I've got regulations to deal with. So, so that piece is similar to the financial space. But I think financial is also much more conservative and tends to really stick with the tried and true and not experiment and explore so much. And at my tell, I've got an amazing wealth of opportunity to learn and secure all kinds of different business efforts. We've got cloud-based offerings. We've got traditional on-prem offerings. We've got the usual IT enterprise that any business has. You know, I've got so many nooks and crannies and so many places and spaces where I can learn and grow, so many good security challenges and so many places and skills to learn those, you know, skills to learn that, that are unique to those spaces that I think it's, uh, it's a really good opportunity for me and my team. So how do you brand Mitel in the cybersecurity industry? Right. So I, I think I think Mitel's brand and my brand are pretty intertwined at this point. Um, and and as you probably know, I've got a I've got a pretty public brand myself. Um, I think there's a lot of folks that didn't even know who Mitel was in the cybersecurity space, but they do now because of me. Similarly, there's a lot of folks in the telecommunications space that um, have, have appreciated and seen value from what I've brought to information security at Mitel. And I think, I think the brands are intertwined, and I think we're seeing strong benefit for all sides and all parties. And I think we're waking the industry up that security is a key component is one of the values that Mitel is gaining from this. And I think we're also waking the cybersecurity industry up that, you know, hey, you can work for a, a telecommunications company and be a, a cybersecurity leader. 
um, not just a player and participant, but a true leader. Somebody like Mitel is actually quite an interesting target. And like you said, a lot of folks traditionally know financial consulting, et cetera. Um, I hope one of the things I'm teaching the industry is that, you know, places like Mitel can be truly rewarding and truly amazing places to be a security practitioner. I second that, certainly. So we spoke about your master's. How else do you keep learning to keep improving? So I'm a big believer in direct vendor engagement. This is um, anyone who follows me on LinkedIn knows about my vendor experiment um, where I basically came out publicly and said, you know what? I, I know most CISOs just blow vendors off. We get cold calls. We get you know unsolicited emails. We delete them all. We ignore them all. I actually reached out directly to the vendor community and said, you know what? You guys know more about the innovations in the industry than I do. You collectively are the innovation in the industry. So I'm going to actively engage you guys a couple hours a week. But I want you to come and talk to me through a certain means. I basically created a form and, and taught people on LinkedIn, answer these four questions. And, and if I don't respond, leave me be. Uh, but if I do respond, we'll set up a meeting and I'm interested and we'll, and we'll talk more. And I'm going to continue propagating that form every few months, reposting that post on LinkedIn. And, um, you know, that's that's one way that I learn is direct vendor engagement. Uh, the other thing I do is I run a podcast of my own. I'm, I'm a co-host of a podcast called Defense in Depth where we take a, a different topic or a different facet of the security world and we go into it in, in a great deal of depth, uh, hence the name, Defense in Depth. We, we choose a different guest every show. We pick other CISOs, industry practitioners, um, all manner of folks that are really talented and really skilled, and we bring them in to discuss whatever this particular topic is each show. And I found that by being a podcast host, I'm learning so much because I'm the sort of person that refuses to look stupid, uh, especially on the microphone. <laughs> and so I will do lots of research ahead of time. In some cases, the topic material we're covering is very outside my comfort zone. I may do 20 hours of research to record a half hour podcast, but that 20 hours of research is all benefit. It's all gain. It's all learning and, and stuff that can help me in my career, help me with my job. I can I can show up to work on Monday and and be much better at something Mitel needs because I, I had to learn some material for the podcast. So I found that to be a tremendous source of learning as well. Yeah, I certainly recommend listening to your podcast. Every single person that is listening to this today um, should certainly check that out. But coming back to your first part of that with the vendor reach out how many if you know did you actually go on to meet and um, what was some of the standout things that you saw on them four questions that intrigued you to go and meet them vendors yeah so the questions are pretty simple i'll go ahead and cover them now so we can sort of lay the foundation so the first question is who are you and what do you do right give me a quick synopsis and i want a short and sweet answer you know we're, we're we we defend against malware on the desktop is a great example of an answer there the next question is, why should I go with you instead of your competitors? What differentiates you, right? Well, Gartner put us in the magic quadrant or, you know, an independent research firm shows that we have fewer false positives or whatever, whatever differentiation you might have. And, and the next point is, you know, how does it work with my business problems? Like help me understand, you know, how you intersect with, with Mitel, with what I'm doing at Mitel. And then the fourth one is really simple. It's just, you know, hey, I thank you for your time. If you're not interested, I'll leave you alone and I won't stalk you. And, and if you are interested, let's keep the conversation going. And for the vendors who actually follow that and answer those four questions that way and, and give me what I'm looking for and demonstrate some awareness of what Mitel is about, you know, because that's really what the point is of question three is don't sell at me blindly. Don't assume I have all the same generic problems that your generic product management team generically put together against a, a fictitious generic industry, right? 
show me that you've done some research. Show me that you have an understanding. You know, oh, hey, I see that Mitel just partnered with Google, and I see you've got a really strong GCP cloud presence now. Hey, we do some really cool stuff with Google. You should be interested in us. Or, you know, hey, I was listening to your podcast, and you, you mentioned that you're really into vulnerability management. We do vulnerability management. You know, whatever it might be, demonstrate that you've taken some time to learn, right? And, and for the vendors who've done that, I've ended up at least having the meeting. Um, show me that you've got an understanding of my issues and my problem space. Show me that you've got a differentiated solution that addresses that problem space. I'll meet with you. Even if I don't buy, I'll at least have the meeting. And I'd argue probably 20% of all vendors that have come at me, I've had at least some kind of encounter with. And of those, probably another 20% I've actually made a purchase. Excellent. Shows it works. Do you recommend other CISOs doing that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've heard I've heard a couple of critics um, say a few things about it. And I'll go ahead and speak to some of the negatives of the of the uh, the approach. You know, one is that don't you have VARs and shouldn't you have your VARs doing this? Uh, for me personally, I want a more direct relationship. Um, I do use VARs on occasion. I have throughout my career. I'm really not a big fan of, of leaning on my VAR to be my my solution finder. I know some folks who use them that way. I just don't choose to personally. And someone else pointed out that it's, you know, my approach is awfully arrogant. <laughs> and, and, and that's a fair claim. That's a fair claim. I'm, I'm sitting here saying, well, if you want to speak to me, you have to speak exactly in this way. Um, I'm certainly being arrogant. And I think it's fair, though, because I think there's one of me and there's thousands of them. And all of those thousands just assume that they can all get that same 15 minutes or 30 minutes of my time. Uh, I love how they always ask for 15 and it's never once in my life been 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, th so there is an amount of arrogance there, but I think it, I think it's justified. If it was their time I was going after, I would respect their rules. Mm. No, I think it's interesting that, you know, you know, we're a cybersecurity staffing firm. So we, we sit sometimes in that vendor pool um, and it can be incredibly difficult to try and get time with people like yourself, you know, so we have to earn it. So I think... Um, I think the right vendors will understand that and respect that you're giving them the opportunity. Uh, and uh, I don't think many CISOs would do that or, or do do that. So I think it's uh, I think it's a, a bright move um, and also will, you know, benefit you in terms of your awareness of what's actually going on in the market as well. I appreciate that. So talk me through a, a project or a time um, at, at any company that you've previously worked at that's really challenged you and, and pushed you out of your comfort zone. I would say the first time I initiated my first product security program, um, I was in an industry and a company at the time where security had never been a, a core focus. Um, again, I started my career a long time ago before there were dedicated security roles in IT. So picture Picture a time period when dedicated security roles in IT have started to happen, and lots of companies are starting to pick that up. But that didn't mean that um, securing your products was necessarily a thing companies had adopted yet. You know, we talk about the Internet of Things, the IoT revolution, and how all these products make it out the door without any security whatsoever. Um, it's in that kind of context that I first said, hey, we need product security. We need to start thinking about the security implications of the, of the folks who buy and deploy our products. We have to think about their environment and what we're doing to that environment from a security perspective. And it was amazing how many folks just didn't want to hear that message. I had vice presidents of engineering pounding the table and telling me point blank, you know, we don't need this. This is not, you know, we, we don't need this in our kind of products for this kind of industry and this niche that we sell in. You know, we just simply don't need security. 
And I was ahead of my time, clearly, um, because a few years later, they were all on board with security. But being the one who was ahead of my time and trying to get that initial awareness and trying to get that initial traction, it was it was very, very challenging. What advice would you give people looking to get into cybersecurity? Don't get too obsessed with the technology is advice number one. And advice number two is don't forget that security is part of a bigger picture. Uh, if you can learn generic IT skills and, and, and generic IT roles, do it. If you can learn engineering skills and roles, do it. If you can learn marketing and sales and product delivery and anything related to how businesses operate, do it. Don't just focus on the cybersecurity. And when you do focus on it, don't just focus on the technology. Excellent. Now, what I didn't tell you, Alan, was that we finished the podcast with 10 quick fire questions. So are you ready? Mm-hmm. So what turns you on professionally? Clean process that aligns with business need and that has understandable risk measured around it. What turns you off professionally? Disorganized business process where collusions and collisions occur, where lack of communication occurs, where it's difficult for any of the players involved to point to what their actual role is in the business and why it's a role in the business. How do you unwind? Uh, sadly for me, I unwind from my information security day job by going to a graduate school program full-time in information security and then spending my weekends recording information security podcasts. <laughs> There's nothing sad about that. Um, what profession other than your own would you like to try? Uh, you know, I get asked that one a lot, and I don't know that I have a good answer. The only thing I could think is one day I might retire and become a, a professor teaching information security. I, I don't think I would ever leave this field. I could just see doing a different role in this field. What activity gives you the most energy? Gives me the most energy. Um, these days, I would say playing video games with my daughter. Who is your biggest inspiration? My biggest inspiration? Um, there's been quite a few over the years. There's been quite a few. Um, the poets and the thinkers. You know, again, I've got that strong liberal arts background that started all this way back when. Uh, so it's interesting how it's not business leaders and technology leaders that I tend to think of when I think of inspiration. It's more the uh, the musicians and the poets and the painters and folks who, to me, really captured and expressed humanity well. If you had to pre present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Efficacy. You were at your best when you were doing what? Aligning my needs with the needs of the greater environment around me. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you like to impart? Spend time with family. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? You did more good than you did harm. Excellent. There we go. So I just want to focus on your podcast for a second. So is there one episode that you really want the listeners to, to go and uh, listen to right now that, you, that you've recorded yourself? You know, I, I think of all the ones that are actually already published because we're always recording ahead of release. So there's quite a few that I can think of that, that haven't been released yet. But I would say the one titled, Is the Security Industry Even Solving Our Problems?, um, Taylor Lehman from uh, Boston, he's a CISO up in Boston. Um, he and I, you know, he was our guest and he and I really went back and forth on 
analyzing the industry as a whole and, and whether or not the industry is really doing what it needs to do. Is it is it delivering on its promise? Is it promising the wrong things? And and more importantly, what can we do in the absence of that industry? What what can we and should we be doing as security practitioners? Uh, back to your point earlier about you know people become much more important than technology. You know let's let's explore that intersection. So I'd say that's probably been one of our best shows yet. And a bit like you, Taylor. Taylor works in a in an industry that you know he works in healthcare. So he works in an industry that again is very underinvested uh, in security. Mean so yeah, it must be must be quite interesting to get his grasp on on that and and how how it can be improved, especially in the healthcare industry, like you're trying to do in the telecoms industry. Yeah, he brought some really good insight. He's a very very bright fellow and and very uh, very experienced and, and brought a lot of good insight to the to the podcast for sure. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Alan, so how can our listeners um, find you? Because I know you're a big personality on LinkedIn, so I want to make sure that they can uh, you know, find you and follow you. Yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, I'll accept any and all connections from folks in the industry, uh, be they vendors, be they practitioners. I try to really foster dialogue. Uh, I mentioned before my posts on LinkedIn, just briefly, I, I try to at least once a week. It doesn't always happen, but I shoot for once a week to post some legitimately original content, usually in the form of questions that the whole purpose of it is to get a dialogue going. And my favorite moments are when the vendors and the practitioners, other CISOs, uh, CIOs and CTOs even chime in sometimes, um, all get to talking about the same issues that we have in the security space and, and how we can jointly solve them or what our take is and what's their take and just getting really strong dialogue going. So I highly suggest to everybody, uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. Come find me. Uh, Alan, A-L-L-A-N, Alford, A-L-F-O-R-D, and I'm the CISO at Mitel. Send me an invite and I'll be glad to bring you into the conversation. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.